Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Mummy Returns. Honey, what you doing? These guys don't use doors. On May 4th. Oh, I hate mummies. The earth will tremble. Mystery will be revealed. This is bad, Evie! We've had bad before! This is worse! My dad is going to kick your Universal Pictures invites you to experience the adventure that will never die. Returns. <clears throat> it was May 2001. We had but four months until we would be stuck in an age of constant terror threat. We were reveling in our victory over the Millennium Bug. The Simpsons was only just past its prime, though we didn't know that at the time. The West Wing was hitting its peak, and the Orwellian nightmare of Big Brother had been transmuted through the lens of irony into the show that set the tone for a decade of reality TV. Bunch of idiots in a house, cameras on all the time, and here are the highlights of the dumb things they said. The biggest musical acts were Gwen Stefani, Destiny's Child, Nickelback, and Limp Bizkit, and S Club 7. George W. Bush was enjoying his first few months in the White House, and everybody was worried about their cargo pants going out of style. In May, Shrek was in the very same cinemas as The Mummy Returns, tweaking the nose of Disney with its sarcastic take on the fairy tale. And at the end of the year, The Fellowship of the Ring and Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone or Philosopher's Stone, depending on region, would be setting the bar of quality and depth for fantasy so high that productions like this could not realistically compete. I'm going to refer back to my Movie A Day Volume 2 for the intro to The Mummy Returns. Somebody on my Twitter feed referred to this film as an abomination, and I quote, That stood me in good stead for reappraising it with a kind eye, because I remember it being very silly, but not by any means worthy of that damning label. It's curious that you can find yourself being hard on a film because its contemporaries and obvious influences are so sky-high amazing, in this case Terminator 2, and I can only presume the teaser trailers for that long-in-production Lord of the Rings, that it is trying so very hard to capture the action and epic scale of. But when you go back, the more cynical fare that has emerged in the intervening years, aspiring to be little more than the first film in a lucrative ongoing series of interconnected promotional business ventures, makes you find yourself really digging the movie that's just trying to be a 12-year-old's version of awesome. One of the tiny little features that I really liked was at a point when Emotep, arisen again, is in no mood for theatrics. He's being shot at from a balcony by Rick O'Connell. And this is a very rare instance when the digital effects being unreactive to physics actually helps the film. If you remember in the first one, sometimes it feels like the swords and the bullets are going straight through the mummies and they're just not even really reacting. But in this case, it actually helps because rather than taking cover or even retaliating, rather than shouting at him something along the lines of, with subtitles, Curse you, O'Connell! Or, We meet again for the first time for the last time! Or something similarly tried. This walking corpse, clearly Vosloo in performance capture, angrily glares up at him while bullets tear through his desiccated flesh. 
He strides around to intercept, pushing Hoods out of the way as he does so. He owns the scene and moves with purpose and definitely doesn't give a flying fork about being shot, thus rendering modern human weapons utterly impotent. One bit, however, foxed me, which is when Alex has the bracelet of Anubis latched onto his arm, an artefact worn by the Scorpion King 5,000 years ago, very clearly noted as being before the time of the pyramids. Yet, it also contains maps and holographic data of the various palaces built long afterwards. It is nice to know that Anubis pushes regular firmware updates to his golden (laughs) wrist-bound platforms. There is a definite chemistry this time between our two leads. Uh, Like, there was chemistry before, but there's a a definite, improved, evolved chemistry. They made great romantic sparring partners before, but now, in my humble opinion, they do one of the best on-screen jobs of convincing as a married couple in an adventure film. You don't get that very often. You get couples who are just meeting for the first time usually very rarely is it we are together husband and wife they converse in the right way they canoodle in the right way they fight in the right way and when their son is kidnapped they keep one another from completely losing it in the right way it's a lovely evolution of the more immature relationship in the original which makes a scene in the third act remarkably poignant because something feels genuinely lost albeit only temporarily It is shot and scored melodramatically as a scene, and it's kind of over the top. But the actors do extremely well at keeping it low-key and personal, despite what was being edited around them. I feel like this scene, nowadays, would be much sort of quieter and more piano-based. As opposed to... But we begin 1,777 years before Imhotep was mummified in the year 3067 BC when the Scorpion King mustered his army to conquer, checks notes, the known world? So how does this sequence set the tone for the movie that is to follow? So the opening sequence with the Scorpion King and his massive army. Welcome back to the show, Debbie Morse, James Batchelor, and Brendan Agnew. This is very much a bigger and broader and... Uh, more visually stunning sequel from the get-go. The first one is is more about tragic romance and monsters, and and it's still an adventure, but it's it still feels like it's trying to hew a little bit closer towards um, Summer's horror roots with Deep Rising and the Mummy's horror roots with the original film. This is what we had before we had the Lord of the Rings. It's Look at this big old battle and these big, like, sweeping vistas and these armies clashing. And and here we have Ardeth Bay doing the narration thing again. But, you know, you've also got the, the magic is turned up to 11. It's, it's almost as much high fantasy as it is creature adventure. Mm. Yeah, they definitely take the stakes up here. And it, it feels like it, it feels a bit, to me, un- unnecessary that, you know, the, the fact that the first one is a relatively small story by comparison. Mm-hmm. You know, they ratcheted up the silly in a lot of ways in this movie. Mm. And I think I think if they would have kept it, I, I mean, I don't know what they would have done for a sequel, but I think I think it would have helped if they would have kept things a little re- a little more reined in and a little more toned down. But I say that at the same time, I, I adore this movie. Also, I had not seen this one. 
in 10 or 15 years until we watched it last night. And I fell right back exactly in love with it as much as I loved it the first, you know, when I first watched it. So for perspective, you said you'd watched the first one more times than you can think of. So do you just like put the first one on and you just never go on to the second? Yeah, generally it's usually, we have such a hard time finding, finding the time to watch a movie a lot of the time. And it, doing it for this this podcast helps because it's like, okay, we got to watch this. You know, we have to watch this by Saturday night or whatever, you know, Sunday morning. And But a lot of times it's really hard for us to find the time blocks to watch two movies. Yeah. You know, four hours is a lot of time to try and find. Yeah. So it's I'll get, a, I'll get a hankering to watch The Mummy, and it's usually The Mummy. And it's then, you know, I, if I, I want to, I, oh, I should watch the second one. And then, you know, I have to go do dishes or laundry or clean the house or whatever, whatever happens to be. And it's like, oh, I need to watch the second one. And, you know, a thousand other things get in my way. It's funny you say that, Debbie. This movie I, I practically have memorized, not so much because I have seen it uh, infinite times. But this is this movie is in a roundabout way the reason that I'm on this show whoa okay elaborate <laughs> well when i was when i was younger um i went to see movies and every now and then i would just not be able to wait to see them again and so i would buy like novelizations and things like that when the mummy returns came out i had started listening to music and cassette tapes when i did things around the house and did chores and so i took a cassette recorder to the theater where i i did buy my ticket i paid for the movie but I recorded the audio for The Mummy Returns on a cassette tape and played it on a Walkman while I would do the dishes, mow the lawn, whatever. And I would – it was just the audio, but it was something to sort of like listen to, just an audio drama with without the actual accompanying visuals. And then later on, when I got into like iPods and smartphones – I got back into the habit of listening to things while I was doing things, whether it was chores or, you know, when I started working out. And that's when I found uh, this podcast that you, you might have heard of, heard of it, uh, Digital Digital Cowboys. Um, <laughs> it's just something I found on the Internet. I, I don't know. They, they talk about movies and games and stuff. Alex. It sounds all right, but, you know. <laughs> it, it was all right. Spider-Man 3. Ooh, uh, mixed feelings were, were felt by the end of it. Uh, now, it, it gets bogged down in its own um, heaviness of story. It, they try to do too much. A whole villain, the Sandman, could actually be cut out from the story. <laughs> really would, and you, you wouldn't know, just, miss him, no. You wouldn't miss him, man, because he, he adds nothing really to the story in the first place. Yeah, so, I like Thomas Hayden Church, but he's uh, more of a MacGuffin than an actual villain. They, they kept changing their names to different stuff. That's a um, bad idea, especially if you call yourself, like, Digital Gonzo or something. People think that's porn. Well, they, then they became Digital Drift, and I thought that was pretty cool because I was into the into Pacific Rim. Well, that um, sounds like they were sort of sharing a private uh, reference with each other that uh, almost nobody could possibly understand, that unless they dug Pacific Rim on a ridiculous level. But that's that's actually sort of how I, I fell into listening to audio things and then into podcasts was i kind of accidentally got a little bit obsessed with this because uh it just it it felt like a sequel in a way that other sequels didn't and this sort of feeds into my um theory that 
the Mummy movies are not exactly, but are in some ways a a predecessor to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, for mm. one, uh-huh. well, well, for one, the Mummy and the Mummy Returns were both early May releases. They were trying to push when a summer release was considered a summer release because the Mummy came out the year of Episode One. They couldn't come out all that much later than The Phantom Menace because they would just get cannibalized. So like, well, we're going to pretend that summer starts at the beginning of May now. Sure. Go <laughs> go see this. This is a blockbuster. Go see it. And people did. And then Spider-Man did the same thing a few years later. And now summer starts. Well, Marvel says summer starts in April now. So there you go. Um, but, but Someone's going to start on the January 1st eventually. <laughs> summer starts whenever Disney says it starts. Yeah. Go see our stuff. Um, God, but is the, Disney the other... driving climate change so they can expand the blockbuster season? Oh. We're through the looking glass here, people. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but, but the other thing is that this felt like it had more of a sense of continuity than, say, your diehards or your your speeds in Speed 2 or, or other sequels in, in various franchises. Certainly more continuity than the Indiana Jones movies, which were very much like... Oh well, Marion's not in this one, and why? Well, like yeah, Temple of Doom came out, and most people didn't realize it happened before Raiders. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas in this, you have a very definitive timeline of things happened between these movies, and these these characters behave very much the same, even though the script is kind of a jumbled mess. Hmm. And you and and this is sort of where they really specifically. Even though The Mummy Returns especially is 99% characters telling other characters the plot, Mm. the characters are so well-performed and well-defined and feel so much like friends that you hang out with, you do the sort of Marvel thing where you're you're okay with just spending time with them talking to each other yeah. just as just as much as you are watching them shoot stuff. When they talked about this in the uh, making of stuff, which is all horribly like talking heads promotional stuff, nothing in depth and, and nothing about the actual production and difficulties they might have had, uh, that it was very much about that we've got to get the gang back together. Everybody really loved the chemistry of all these characters. And apart from Omid Jalali, who we didn't mention in The Mummy, is hilarious and gets taken out way too early. Uh, he's the oh. guy who ends up with a bug in him. They brought yeah. back everyone. Yeah, that's like Guardians. So imagine if Guardians of the Galaxy 3 had a different director and like a whole bunch of them just wouldn't show up at all. I mean, it would be, it would be terrible. <laughs> maybe, they could, maybe they could get Rob Cohen to... Uh... Maybe Rob Cohen, director of Triple X and the Fast and the Furious, the first one. Anyway, <clears throat> stealth. So... <laughs> and Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. Yeah, anyway, oh. so moving moving <laughs> as fast on as we possibly could. We recorded this session a week before James Gunn was publicly reinstated. So glad he's back. Any any more on, on the... Because, like, you know, you were talking about um, how this is kind of like Marvel. You, you had my curiosity. Now you have my attention. Well, the other thing <laughs> is that the end of Deep Rising, and this is going into the weeds a little bit, the end of Deep Rising sets up a, oh, no, we're on a monster island. And that's partially because people were toying with the idea of at the same time Godzilla came out Mm. rebooting King Kong and having Godzilla fight King Kong. And that's part of what Steven Summers was playing with, with the end of deep rising. And that's why it's an uncharted Island. And there's a giant thing crashing through the jungle towards them was he was possibly going to work on that. And that didn't happen because Godzilla Mm. was a bit of a bad movie that didn't make enough money. 
And so they, they scaled back from doing giant monster things. But Steven Summers was sort of already in the game of cross-franchise sort of universe planning or conceptualizing and then ended up uh, trying to jump to uh, to third base with that, with uh, Van Helsing. To... <laughs> we got Dracula meets Frankenstein and the Wolfman. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I love this film because you're kind of building on what Brendan says. Like, this is one of those sequels where the the only reason this film exists is the first film was so successful, we need to make another one. In fact, I believe I read that um, Universal basically went to Summers like the day after they'd seen the film and said, yeah, start making another one. Yeah, we need another one of these. Quality. We're going to need like a bigger say, mummy. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And like you say, it's because it's the band's all back together. I think because... Because you're not trying to impress people, because you're not trying... The, the first moment you're trying to draw people in, you're trying to like introduce new characters like this. This is a big film that you want to... We want you to enjoy. Because the first one was so successful already, because the characters are already loved, they can be that much more silly with it. They can be that bit more casual, bit more comfortable. They can make almost make a little bit less effort because they know the audience is already invested. And this is one of the prime examples of where, you know what, this actually works. Like, I, I used to kind of class this as guilty pleasure, and it's not guilty anymore because it, it's a bloody excellent film. It's an entertaining film. It's not, like, particularly clever. It's, it's got its flaws, absolutely. Many, we will go into them in detail, I imagine. But, um, but it's enjoyable. It's, yeah, going back to what, um, what we were saying about, you know, the... Um, watching the two of them back to back like i actually often find myself just watching the second one because it's just a fun it's a romp if ever there is a word to describe this one it's a romp it's it's one of those films where i was like yeah you know what i just want a fun adventure with more characters and yeah all right it's pretty much doing the same thing that they did the first time but i really enjoyed that i'm really enjoying this there's such a lower barrier to entry for this one and the, there's something about the way they made this film that it, it really pulls off. There are others where it doesn't. Like I, I, for example, like the whole ten yards because I loved the whole nine yards, and I and whole ten yards is awful. I get that, but I enjoy it because like I enjoy the first film. But you get these sequels sometimes where they're they're a little overly reliant on. Oh, remember when we did this in the first one? There's you're a little overly reliant on the nods. Here, the nods are just for fun. This is still trying to stand up as a a decent film, or would be at one slightly you know, very derivative. It's trying to stand up as a, a decent film in its own, and you enjoy those little moments where they they nod back to the first one. You know, um, when Alex is trying to read the the. Book of the Dead at the end, and he can't work out this last symbol. It's a bird, a stork, and it's word for word the same as Evie to John. Uh, sorry, John, hmm. <laughs> Evie to Jonathan in the the first um, the first film, and he's and again he gets to go. He's like, oh, oh, I know that one because he's remembering back there, and he's in the middle of an action sequence. But you are remembering that first one. It's like, oh yeah, the first one was really good. This one's really good as well. It's just, it it works. The, the references, they're there, but they stand on their own. Even if you didn't see the first one, they're still entertaining. It still works. Like the scene, I love the, you know, the scene knocking over the, you know, the dominoes-like scene in the first one. And then Alex does the same thing with the pillars in the temple mm. in this one. Oh, that, and, and, uh, that scene in the library in the original is masterful, practical uh, uh, stuntery. That they could do that once. It was real. Mm-hmm. 
And if they messed it up with that wonderful like 360 shot, if the camera had gone too fast or, or too slow or stopped working or one of the shelves hadn't fallen properly, uh, then the whole thing would have been ruined. And it, yeah. it was a one-time deal. That that was excellent. And yeah, you're right. The uh, uh, the, the little callback to that with the statues was, was fantastic. It's like you say as well, like, like you don't have to have seen the first one to enjoy this one and to know what is a nod to the previous one. The one I love is... Um, when they're when they find the chest in the temple at the start so like it's a box no harm ever came from opening a box and Brendan, like Brendan Rick straight in is like yeah no harm ever came from reading a book we remember how that turned that out turned out yeah <laughs> oh yes absolutely the references they're there but they're not they're not intrusive you don't need to have seen the first one to enjoy them in this movie the the chemistry as as Alex you said and I I 1000% agree with you like Rick and Evie, you know, again, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor doesn't count. That that, as far as I'm concerned, that that's not part of it. The Scorpion King is the third movie. Struck me, from I don't canon. care. <laughs> exactly, um, but like Rick and Evie in this mo- movie, totally hashtag relationship goals. Yeah, like indeed. I want to be them. You know, I want Karu and I to be them. Well, we're kind of them now already, but. You know, they're partners, they're friends, they're giving each other shit, but in a very realistic, loving way. They have an awesome kid who's who's clearly smart and capable in his own right. I love them so much, and yeah, the script is kind of a mess, and there's a lot of inconsistencies. I don't care. Like, <laughs> I just want to be spend two hours with these people and have a hell of a good time just watching them watching them bounce off each other it's self-aware enough of being a sequel that it basically does the first movie in the first mm, 15-20 minutes Mm. and then it does the whole thing with Alex and it's like you think you're like okay things are gonna settle down now oh nope and Alex gets grabbed and boom we're off on something a little different It really does help that they're not just making the same movie again. I mean, Die Hard 2 is just Die Hard again in a different place. Yeah. Whereas this... Only without friggin' uh, Alan Rickman, you switch, which switched him for William Sadler, who, for, with the best yeah. will in the world, is not Hans Gruber. Yeah, no, it's, it's just lesser Die Hard again. Whereas with this, it, like Debbie said, they, they do what you kind of expect in that first few minutes, and then it's like, boom, oh no, this is a chase movie that's also an epic fantasy quest sort of thing. Mm-hmm as opposed to just the, you know, exploration and then run away from the monster, which uh, this is where it it turns into kind of a mess. But the idea of, again, expanding and spinoffs and starting another franchise, you know, where, you know, where um, like, oh, now Spider-Man and Black Panther are going to get their own movie after appearing in Civil War. Not that The Rock and the Scorpion King are anywhere near as effective as those characters, but (laughs) it's an impressive attempt to... <laughs> they do. They talk. <laughs> They're actual characters, um, but it, it's it's an impressive uh, impressive attempt to try and expand the world and try and do something a little bit different instead of just rehashing the same story. It is frustrating if you watch the Scorpion King. You're like, oh, okay, so he's like a fun Conan uh, that you know is a PG thirteen that kids can enjoy, which was better than the one which actually had Aquaman in it, the Conan remake that nobody liked and was expensive and lost the studio money um, so like that version of the Scorpion King you're like well that would be really cool if he turned up in a mummy movie and like maybe a advanced version of him was the end boss so if you somehow saw that one first 
and then you saw this, you'd go, what the flip at the end. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, but we'll talk about that in a bit. <laughs> this is not going to be a beat down from me on The Mummy Returns. I, I enjoy it. I'm going to have some fun poking holes in it. It's okay to like a movie. I kissed you today. I hate it when you do that. Why? It makes me feel like agreeing to anything. Anything? <laughs> Those knickers are not mine. So then I killed the mummy and all his minions and stole his scepter. Oh, you're so brave. <laughs> and Rich. Did I mention Rich? What do you think I'm doing here? <laughs> Must be in the wrong house. I thought you said this was your house. No, I didn't. Call me. Uh-huh. Stephen Summers and his weird new fixation on Terminator Two. Like it, there was a little bit of it in the uh, the first one, uh, but uh, the mummies that attack them in that bus sequence. That whole thing has is kind of like Evil Dead meets uh, Terminator Two, uh, and uh, like they're, they're trying to get in from the top and they're shooting up at the roof. Evie with the shotgun is like doing the Sarah Connor thing, and at the middle section, completely divorced from this sequence, Arnold Vosloo's mummy like grabs Alex, like brings him up into the air with force powers. Lyra said, "Oh, he's got force powers now." Yeah, got force powers. <laughs> Uh, and brings him towards him and then does that wag with his finger just like the uh, T-1000 and honestly like I said it comes off as like a 12 year old's version of what's cool and since a lot of other films at this point were trying so hard to do the Matrix it was kind of neat to see uh, something that was trying to be a big you know epic fantasy thing that wasn't just trying to do the Matrix and wasn't and des- definitely wasn't we demand to be taken seriously. Though there was um, <laughs> the sequence where uh, it's the flashback and uh, Anak Sunamun and Nefertiti have that Psy fight. Not sure about the historical validity of Psy daggers <laughs> in ancient Egypt, but that's okay, we'll leave that. I'm not sure about the historical validity of Rachel Weiss in ancient Egypt. Well, but... <laughs> there is that too. Um, I, I turned off the music and stuck on Michael Jackson's Remember the Time over that sequence. And uh, it was like, yeah, this, this fits alarmingly well. Uh, but at the same time, like, it's two girls like going at each other. Wait, it's two girls <laughs> grabbing weapons off the wall and like, oh, maybe I can beat you with this thing. That's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which came out like just the year before. It is a bit Crouching Tiger. Yeah. It's impressive that they, they apparently trained for months to actually do the fight themselves instead of doing stunt women. That's hmm. that's Rachel and Patricia Velasquez doing it. But yeah, yeah it's very Crouching Tiger. Yeah. Uh, but the whole movie sort of comes off as a melange of a kid who's seen a bunch of films and is so excited to be doing a film himself that he like, you know, it's like, well, we could have this bit from that movie and this bit from that movie. And I was exactly the same as that in the early 2000s. I was like filling my early version of what eventually became New Century with the Matrix stuff and Lord of the Rings stuff. So I was kind of on the same level as uh, uh, um, uh, Steve at that stage. And uh, there's a charm to that, and it's very enthusiastic. Question, though. What's going on with the whole souls and body magic in this movie? Hermione has her hand up again. I have thoughts on this. 
Patricia Velasquez, who because seems this to is be ridiculous. Like she was like, I get got to get to come back and be an Uxana Moon again. She's really into her character. So so what's going on <laughs> with her? So. Uh, right. Resurrected in body but not in but spirit. Not in spirit, right? Okay. okay. There's there's two things going on here, right? And neither of them are reincarnation. Okay. Okay. <laughs> First off, they keep calling it reincarnation. It's I do not think not. that means what you think it means. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so um the the phrase used is that Mila, who is P- Patricia Velasquez's uh, in nineteen thirty three, yeah, is a reincarnation only in body of a Naxxonamu. So what we're talking here is Jupiter ascending rules that she has. We hope you've seen it by sheer fluke. Been born with the exact DNA sequence that. An Axonamun had. So. Bring an Axonamun to me immediately. Yes. So she's she's an exact physical replica of her. So Imhotep wants to bring back an Axonamun's soul so that he can have her back. Kind of like he was trying to do in the first movie. But you see, this is the thing. By that argument, he could just, like, grab any random woman. Yeah. Resurrect an Axonamun's corpse. Yeah, but he's got a type. And feed it to her. And But no, that's the thing. If she absorbs the energy, yeah. she comes back physically. He doesn't need Mila at all. Uh, except for the fact that yeah. it's, it's Mila's motivation for wanting to be an Axonamun and be with him mm-hmm. that causes her to gather the people who uh, resurrect him in the first place. So she is really quite key in initiating this whole thing. But then, technically speaking is not required for the events to proceed. I like the whole, like, she has to reenact the suicide, like, um, of the original film, which was a neat little Back to the Future 2-style moment of going back to that moment from a slightly different angle. Mm -hmm. I like the idea that she has to sort of reenact that to punch her soul out of her own body. So that Anak Sunamun can come in. Yeah. Yeah. But then that begs the question, where's Mila gone? And again, what was her motivation in all of this? Which made me think that it's like, get out, and uh, Mila goes to the sunken place. And that's terrifying. <laughs> Maybe Mila has been kind of brainwashed by this the the red garbed cult that she seems to be working with. Because it's never they've never really identified that group, do they? As far as I can remember, the the group that, that is is trying to to raise Imitip and take over the world. Maybe she's been brainwashed in, by the cult into thinking that this is a good thing. Mm. From from Imitip's point of view, I can absolutely see why. Yeah, rather than just dig, yeah like restoring the soul to the corpse as I was trying originally because he's tried that twice first time he got um, mummified and cursed second time he got killed if you've got this fully you know, fully fledged woman who he already got looks like a nut son of a woman and all you have to do is kneel by a pool say some words and she just becomes your ex-girlfriend you do that that's much easier yeah. absolutely no you are quite right so so that's the, the sort of the physical reincarnation element of it okay the other part of it is this is going by the island rules, whereby if you have the exact DNA of somebody, because also let's not forget that it would appear Evie has the exact DNA sequence of Nefertiri. What are the odds? I know. <laughs> the two of them showing up in the same place at the same time. Um, but that seems This has been to... prophesied for generations. Yeah. That seems to have given her Nefertiri's memories. And there are a couple of moments where Mila appears to have Anaxonamun's memories, even though at that point she does not yet have her soul. Mm-hmm. So the argument there would be that if you have the exact same DNA sequence, then your brain is exactly the same shape, therefore you have this person's memories. That is not 
how memories work. <laughs> and it makes me very, very cross. And I, I was talking about this while we were watching it. And like, Did they violate that in Jupiter Ascending? I forget. Did she f- remember anything about the mother or was she was just herself? I don't think so, no. no. She, she, she no. just has her... But, no, I don't but, think so. But in the island, they did. The big question mark over that one is, why would you want to leave everything that you have to somebody who is completely unconnected to you in either family or soul way it's literally just that they have the same body as you it's like finding somebody who's got your exact same pair of shoes and leaving (laughs) that man has my hair exactly why would you do that okay fetch my last will and testament we got amendments here (laughs) don't get a haircut so I but yeah the memories thing did make me very annoyed and Lyra wanted to know why I was getting so cross about it and I said because I find that the whole sort of how memories are formed thing fascinating in terms of like the real way that it works for somebody to come along and do a film about oh yeah it's just your brain's the same shape what no however one thing I do really really like about Mila's costume is that her dress is patterned after an Axinaman's body paint. She has that sort oh, of nice. ladder design down her arm. Nice. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was mm-hmm. a really nice touch. And that actress, I I love, love, Patricia love her Velasquez. performance. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Patricia, she is very intimidating. She's, you know, she has all of her own agency and clearly a lot of these people are taking orders from her without question. Adewale Okanoya Agbaje as Loch Nah is this not big, like, hench dude. And he seems to have pitted himself against this little boy as like, you are my arch nemesis. <laughs> and there's that bit where they're on the train and this kid's deliberately irritating this guy like he's a babysitter, removing all sense of threat. I love this scene, it's delightful. Are you there yet? No. 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 And then, like, he, the, the boy's irritating him on purpose, and it seems like the two actors have enough chemistry that you're like, they actually really like each other. This is hilarious fun. So it then takes Patricia Velasquez coming in to be like, no, she's actually the dangerous one, to 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 present a sense of of threat. Because at this point, it seems like Alex is running rings around his captors just by annoying them. And then when he's like, you know, I don't want to uh, to go to the toilet when you're around, you'll look. And he seems really affronted. He's like, what? What? The very idea. And, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, so it, it, it gives Alex quite a bit of agency, and he's got cunning as well. So he's, he's kind of the son of his... Like, when you're younger, kids like this are annoying. When you're older, they're less annoying, unless they're poorly written it depends how young you are if you're 10 kids like this are you hmm i don't know like yeah. sometimes when i was 10 i was like that kid isn't me <laughs> his name's alex he couldn't have been more you if he tried oh hang on, hang on. not that kid the kid in daryl <laughs> anyway it was it to t- bro was his name toidle <laughs> okay um Someone say something about things. Oh, yeah, hang on. One more, one more thing about Patricia Velasquez. The thing that calls into question what the hell's going on with souls and what happens to Mila is when, after she's killed Evie, she walks past Alex and then in this chilling fashion 
waves at him. Now, Mila talked to him earlier and threatened him with an asp, but then in the meantime, while they've been apart, she took on the soul of Anxanamun. So that calls into question who's driving, where's Mila, all of that. Like, have they merged to sort of become two entities that have the same body? Is she Venom? Is that how you get Venoms? <laughs> Mila, we're Venom hungry. Because that's how you get Venom. <laughs> Okay, carry on. That's all. The only thing I noticed about that that one bit, which sort of contradicts the uh, sunken place. Well, I mean, the the reason that that's there is so that Alex can see the Book of the Dead and get the idea for. Oh, wait, that's how we're going to bring Mom back. But okay, I I do kind of think that that a sort of merging of the souls is maybe the point they're they're trying to make because Evie feels comfortably at home with Neverteri, sort of just like. Hmm. coming in and saying hi and giving her visions and then she almost commits suicide and then rick catches her and she answers to nefertiri when she's talking to an Uxuna moon yeah um she's sort of acting like she's basically just two two people two spirits uh, just cohabiting a body or or forming a person or, or something. Alternately, it's just the the thing is whatever it needs to be for Summers to make the next thing happen. Mm. Which <laughs> and it yeah. changes from scene to scene. Mm. Although that does kind of hint that there could be uh, an explanation for how Evie is able to come back. That maybe when Anaxonamun stabs her, that's actually Nefertiri that she kills and not Evie. Huh. That that scene like got to me back uh, at the time, but now that I've been married to Sharon for quite a long while now, and we have a child, that really hurts to see them like she's you know she's like take care of him. That's that's a that's a moment, and I feel like again if it was directed today, it would be much more subdued. And I also feel like they might have stuck with it, especially if she's not coming back for Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. Given the choice, I would never kill Evie. But if I was going to, I would want there to be a lot of weight attached to that moment. Immediately followed by some weirdly tonally inappropriate moments where John's walking down the corridor with Alex and he's like, oh, I remember Evie. And it's like, you're holding her fucking body. <laughs> and then Alex says, yeah, like mum used to do this. He's like, yeah, your mum, who's there and is dead. At least show like you actually feel it. Like, I know like, it, it seems like they're showing their hand of, oh, we're bringing her back in two seconds. Don't worry about it. They do up until, except for when they're dealing with Rick, like they, they do yeah. hold that card just a little bit. Yeah. I, I appreciate that for one, Fraser and Weiss really do commit to the bit in yeah. the scene. And then even to the point where Fraser is doing during the big dolly shot of like, oh no, he's cradling her body. He's not doing a no, no! to the heavens. Yeah. yeah. Like he's, he's doing this to like kind of pathetic comeback, you know, uh, begging for just like you know to to have his his best friend and lover back, which is really poignant. And then later on, he just wordlessly, well, almost wordlessly, goes off and like he's got like circles under his eyes, and he's he's just like really he's ready to just really f some people up. It's it's kind of a little bit not not necessarily jarring, but it feels like something's been ripped away from him mm. because of how well Fraser plays it. And so I, I didn't quite mind Jonathan and Alex kind of acting like Jonathan and Alex because I was just watching Rick, you know, with that, like, gallows look in his face as he goes, to, like, I'm going to go kill Imhotep and then I don't care what happens to me. I'm just like, oh, yeah. poor lamb. Yeah. It does feel 
less my dead family partly because like you say that that pullback dolly shot he's he's just lying on her body mm. obviously devastated and mm-hmm. then it's his his steps through the next few scenes are okay there is shit that has to be done i will put this in the background and we will get this done but it's not like i must take revenge on everybody over dramatic. This is the only way it's acceptable to process grief. I, you, you do, or at least I did, really get the feeling that this is something that he's going to be dealing with afterwards. Mm. Um, but that yeah. that scene really, really gets to me as well. And this again backs up what I was saying about the the balance of power between the two of them. The fact that even in this moment when Evie is dying, Rick has to ask her what to do because she's the planner, she's the thinker for them, she's the brains, and he cannot kind of take that role and take that power even when she's slipping away it's so sad and it really emphasizes how they balance each other out and how their his curvy edges match her curvy edges they make a really snug pair i don't think i necessarily would want to keep evie dead because she's such a lovely character uh, but maybe maybe just commit to that moment for a little longer have the death happen earlier have it affect the characters more and have you want them to come back to being happy so that like bring her body we'll get it, we're going to get your mom back into her body something along those lines but they're intercutting it with this massive desert sequence of the magi turning up with like a, there's a bajillion of them and then the anubis warriors turn up and it's like i am a dead fear you care about me you don't care about all these dudes, and you don't care about all those dudes. But I'm here to guide you through the battle, nonetheless. He's <laughs> the narrator. That's his job. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 another one of those like big showy battles, and I think it probably just that there there were so many big battles shunted into films that didn't need to be there after Lord of the Rings that uh, it, it began. I'm getting kind of battle fatigue. I really appreciate it when, as with Helm's Deep, they give us time with at least one side so you can really invest. You know, at the time when they brought it out in 2001, it was like, look what we can now do with CG. Have a whole bunch of agents running around, like, stabbing at each other, like a, a different version of what would be massive for uh, uh, Weta. Uh, it's less exceptional now in retrospect. At the time, it was pretty new. It's telling that the most emotionally effective part of that battle is when they give you about... 10 seconds to show the surviving magi mm. looking at the oncoming sea of anubis warriors is like well we're boned we're yeah. boned and you get alan Silvestri give you that little leap motif and artith bay looks at his men looks at his men is like well till death and they're like yeah sure you're you're awesome we'll follow you till death he does and that really awesome run with like and then like ratchets in the the camera it's it's a it's a moment of stylized highlighted action to capture your focus and the, the symbiosis that you mentioned, uh, Sharon, with uh, with Evie and Rick is one of the things I really appreciate is that they rhyme him saving her like an hour later into the film with her saving him from the, the sea of grabby hands hell hell people. Mm. Uh, with, mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's dumb and it's big and it's obvious, but having both him and Imhotep right there and... Him and and Rick saying no no Alex is safe go go save yourselves get out of here and her absolutely refusing to do that and Imhotep begging for help and Anuxuna Moon fleeing I mean it 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 works like it's it's dumb and big and broad but it it really kind of lands because again the actors are they're in it 
also that means that Imhotep has been investing in this woman for about three thousand two hundred and twenty-six years. Uh, and he's like, you know, she, she and I have got to be together. Just, I can't stop thinking about Alex and the Moon. It's the first thing he thinks of when he wakes up, and then it, like it's all about bringing her back. And at the, when it comes to the crunch, she just goes, "I'm leaving," and just <laughs> runs away as soon as it becomes too dangerous. Considering how cursed he got. Yeah. For her sake, I mean, there were flies. And so, if you look at Arthur Fosloo's <laughs> face, he's like, "Oh fuck it!" Like, <laughs> like Ray Winston and the Departed. <laughs> Again, does, I keep doing we hate movies. That here. does kind of back up the theory that Mila is in there somewhere. That maybe that's not an Anuxana Moon that runs away from him. Maybe. maybe it's Mila. Maybe she's like, "Screw she this! Did. I want my body back." Came out of the sunken place. We got to get out of here. There's fucking pygmies and bugs everywhere. <laughs> Maybe Mila was in there because when she meets her end, like under this carriage, she's screaming and petrified and has no idea what's going on. Yeah. And obviously, I, you would think Anux and the Moon, being an ancient Egyptian, yeah. is familiar with scarabs. Oh, oh yeah, scarabs, yeah. I get eaten by those all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe not like that. Not like that. <laughs> I just want to say this now as, as it tags on to what Sharon was saying earlier, um, talking about, you know, Brendan Fraser selling selling Evie's death okay. 110%. And also, when Alex gets grabbed, it's the same, you know, he is 110% selling us that his family is the most important thing to him. His first thought when, when Alex gets grabbed out of the bus, like Evie was just in danger. And so he's holding her and kissing her and like he's afraid she's going to disappear. And the two of them reuniting just a little bit. And then right in the middle of that, Alex gets grabbed. And his instant reaction is the fact that he takes off running after that car flat out. As if the strength of his love for his son, I I think Karu said it, can make him fly. He is going to jump that bridge and he is going to catch that car and get his son back. Again, he is selling this so hard that you care you care so much because you absolutely buy that this man loves his family and he would do anything anything for his family i think that's what makes quite jarring later on when they're on the dirigible and evie is standing there like looking lost in space and i don't know there's just something slightly wooden about rachel vice's acting in that moment like i want him back i want him in my arms it's so sad i can't bear it. it's like and that doesn't quite sell it as much as brendan fraser running up tower bridge and preparing to vault over the damn thing (laughs) (laughs) i i took that myself my reading on that scene is i i see what you what you say you know he seems wooden I, i took it as she is a little bit it's, it's maybe the two souls thing she is kind of a little bit hung over from experiencing the memories mm. and so it's it's she's kind of finding who's more in charge of things here whether it's whether it's nefertiri or evie she, you know she's in grief she just went through some major trauma and then suddenly she's having to deal with trauma related to her son so i think i i took that as those two things kind of working against each other I think mm. that that's my read anyway I think I said earlier that the uh, CG seemed a little bit worse than the uh, uh, first movie first off there's a lot more of it a lot and I think the the greatest problem is not so much that there wasn't enough money but it feels like there wasn't enough time 
to get all this stuff done. If you remember when Return of the King uh, was at crunch time, they had everyone working ridiculous hours and just not going home just to get it finished. And that was there was a lot of digital on that. Um, but if you look at what they've had to re- like in the original Mummy, there was you know scarabs, sand, the Mummy himself, and those helper mummies. But in this. We've got armies and pygmies and pyramids and sandstorms and oasis storms and oasis springing up out of nowhere and cities and dirigibles and tidal waves, T-1000 zombie mummies and more scarabs and infrarai and the scorpion king. You know, a lot of close-ups on the mummy. I think the worst shot of both of these films is, is when Emotep like sucks the flesh off of those um, guys who he tricks into opening the canopic jars you see him really close up and those eyeballs in his head I think that's the thing that we're like a human knows what's not an eyeball those great big CG eyeballs in his head look lawnmower man last week I compared some elements of the original mummy to the lawnmower man which is actually really pretty unfair if you go back and watch that film now it is the most basic use of CG but this bit where the corpse mummy starts to look more like the Arnold Vosloo mummy might be the second most basic. I think they just sort of took for granted this is what Imhotep looks like and you all know what this is. He always seemed a little bit brownish and a little bit beigey, a little bit smudgy, lacking in definition, maybe lacking in, in some of the sort of... It's almost like they softened it to make it a bit less gory and dis- like disgusting, like to have his like... old dry tendons moving backwards and forwards within his face which would have required a lot of extra um, focus and also would have made it you know really quite nauseating to a lot of people Uh, but they they, it seems like they took some shortcuts here just to get those things done there's more creature work obviously the digital army of Anubis warriors going up against many flesh and blood magi extras you've got two armies one of which is some real, one of which is not at all real, some of which aren't real at all. Like you've got, and, and in terms of camera focus, it's just establishing this sea of bodies crashes against this sea of bodies. You don't really have to look at battle tactics. You don't really have to like get down in the thick of it. And when you do, it's just sort of like slashing swords and, and a digital army, and that isn't going to be as engaging and it's just going to look more showy and especially in retrospect when you've seen a lot more involved stuff later on it's going to feel a little uh, light um the oasis in the desert just sort of springing up it didn't look quite so bad when it began but when it kind of turns into all those leaves at the end it's there's, there's a lot of particle effects and like you know the smoke in there and the sand in there the water section when it's that giant face going down if you lock your eyes on the water elements when Emotep is summoning it up and turning it into a giant tidal wave there's just four or five moments when you go ooh 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 when the water goes rushing off it's like a turquoise smudge made of crayon is going between these uh, digital cliffs even the river he's standing in, like, yeah. when he's standing in the river to begin with, like, that's awful CG. And it has to be so, like, when the, the first time I watched it, the first couple of times I watched it, I think, yeah. I didn't really twig that that water was CG. I was just watching what was happening. Yeah. And because then, because he's standing and it's all waist deep, it obviously cuts to, you know, the end of the chase and, you know, the, the river's, you know, much, much, it's ankle deep. And I remember thinking, 
I wonder how they've done that because that's the same river, same location, definitely. And then you watch back like that's very clearly CGI. Yeah, yeah. And there's a there's a lot of green screen used in this dirigible sequence. So when they're finishing up on it, uh, there's uh, since they're in enclosed in a green screen room, there's green light bouncing onto their hair, and it looks like their hair is beginning to dissolve into the rock because the rock is the thing that's being placed in the background. Just little things that when you know when to look for them. They're there, and it just feels like they didn't really have time to finish this stuff or paste over it, and and there was a lot of pressure to just get it out for this May release date. Uh, there's a lot more CGI mummies than the pygmies. I think the pygmies they kind of get away with because they're so manic. They're such like little gremlin guys, that and and there's so many little nasty little touches that you're too busy going to actually go. Oh, the CGI on this isn't all that fantastic the bit that always sticks out in my head is when those guys fall into the quicksand and then the pygmies use their heads as stepping stones but then that's not enough they then have to start jumping up and down on their heads to make them sink faster it's just that that one pygmy yeah (laughs) and uh, there's a there's a bit when like a bunch of pygmies like fall on two guys and start stabbing them with bone knives and i I, there's one big pygmy like right at the front who goes at you and I thought that's a really great moment because they're drawing the eye to this horrible little thing attacking you so that your eye doesn't go back to these poor guys getting stabbed and you don't go, oh, that's just horrible. <laughs> <laughs> like, y- you're not too busy um, feeling sorry for the henchmen. The water and the sand and the slow-mo in the fights, which sometimes feels uh, like they're trying to do the Matrix or trying to do John Woo. And we'll talk about the big fight with the Scorpion King now if you want to because... Uh, um, when that guy comes out, <laughs> I wonder if there were people actually expecting it to be the Rock who were disappointed because this thing looks Me, like a... I was that I was yeah. that person because I, I I didn't give a damn about WWE. I'd heard of D- the Rock. I'd heard of Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, and I was like, oh, okay, this is quite cool. I'm intrigued to see how how, how a wrestler stands up in a in a Hollywood action film. And they make this massive deal of, you know, oh, this is The Rock's first big movie and, you know, he's, he's the villain. This, and we've been building and building and building for like you know, an hour and a half at this point to seeing The Scorpion King. Yeah. And the doors open and I'm like, that's it. Really? It's a PlayStation he, he, 2, boss. Oh, it's awful. And, and, and then I'm sitting there thinking, so how much do you get paid for five minutes of footage? Yeah. <laughs> And again, yeah. because you you know what's not an eyeball, the worst shot is where he sort of like comes really close to the screen and goes, ah, sort of looks at the at Emotep and Rick, and you're like, that's not a real face. Those aren't real eyes. There just isn't time to really do... Like, I was looking at the, you know, how we um, did the rendering passes on this, and, and you know how it's like, you know, the, the five or six different passes and then just to get the, all the detail. And it, it felt like for this one, it was like, right, here's the wireframe drawing and here's where we just chucked skin on it. And then we just went. That was the final one. There you go. <laughs> they couldn't do hair yet, really. And yeah. You can really tell because he's got that big, big, long black hair, um, which, I mean, it's it's not even The Rock's hair. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, the, Dwayne Johnson's never had, like, hair that long during his professional career. And I, I will, I will defend the design from a conceptual standpoint of like a dude with big scorpion legs and the pincers, and that is a really cool monster look. It's 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 basically a centaur, but it's a bug, mm. which is neat. Yeah. And again, it's kind of Harryhausen-y. 
And, uh, you know, watching they were, Yeah, someone... they were definitely going for Harryhausen. Yeah. And, I do love the bit someone... where he pulls that uh, henchman up to the roof. He's like, ah, help me! And Imhotep yeah. goes, why? And then he gets cut into four things. It's brilliant. <laughs> exactly. And and so I, you know, I can appreciate that, you know, like dudes trying to fight giant bug monster sorts of things. But they just, they, again, they weren't there yet. Like mm. Steve, Steven Summers was trying to do something that like, you know, either because time is money and they didn't have the time for it or because skin and hair and eyes weren't there. But yeah. they, gosh darn it, they really wanted it to be. This is like, oh, man, no, maybe you. Maybe you should have just had like him in some weird makeup with, uh, you know, with a bunch of with a bunch of weapons beating the crap out of Brendan Fraser and Arnold Vosler. That probably would have been better. Which... And cheaper than what they ended up. They, they Christ knows much. how much, how many Henry Cavill mustaches you could buy for that. Oh, <laughs> which sorry, is a bummer mustache because... removals. Exactly. Which which is unfortunate because other than that, which, which is kind of a big other than this sort of has a better three arena finale than episode one the phantom menace because you have brendan fraser's rick who is you you've got a Mm. very strong emotional connection with him trying to stop the scorpion king and avenge evie you've got john and alex trying to bring evie back and then you've got ardith bay and the the rohirrim essentially you know Mm. the, the magi you know, just trying to... They are doing the Rohirrim thing. They're just trying to buy them time. Yeah. And you like Ardith, you like Rick, and you like John and uh, John and Alex. Oh, and Evie comes to... back and gets to have another Psy fight with... Um, exactly. ...with uh, Anakin and the Moon. So, so you've got enough connection with the characters. You don't really care about the Scorpion King taking over the world, but you care that Ardith will probably die, mm. and you care that these other characters are in danger... And it switches back and forth, and the the rhythms are are kind of awkward with the tonal switching, but you're still way more emotionally invested than you are in those Gungans and those fighter pilots and those guards people. And I guess these Jedi are cool. Why not? Sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, if they they weren't fighting a PS2 character, like, this would be... Pretty, pretty choice because the Brendan Fraser on a Vosloo fight where it's just them beating each other up with weapons that that works. That's pretty good. It was pretty cool. Like, like yeah, that actual fight is great, and especially like the the sort of like he starts it by banging the gong. That's like this. Like, oh, remember when this whole film series was about classical cinema? Well, they, we're going to start <laughs> with banging the gong, and yeah. uh, like, but when they first go, he first goes into the t- temple. All of his powers get stripped away and he becomes a low-powered mummy. Not so many people know, but vampires can go out during the day. They say they can go out during the day, but they become a low-powered vampire. What the hell is a low-powered vampire? And people watching were going, yeah. And I was going, no, hold on! <laughs> Absolutely not! No way! What is a low-powered vampire, anyway? It can't actually fly anymore. <laughs> Alright, I'm daytime vampire. Go on, thank you. Officer, there's a nutter in the park. There's such a low-powered vampire. They're no bother this time of year. Be in bed by nightfall. Uh, I, I was just like, wouldn't that have been cooler to watch if he'd had his his mummy powers versus the Scorpion King? And it's like, nah, take those away because we've got to sort of even the score. All of the build up to the Scorpion King. Then that one guy who I just said got cut into four things. 
he sticks his hand in the hole you shouldn't stick your hand in. <laughs> yeah. And there's that like wonderful moment of, oh, God, no. And rather than cheating us on it, and it's like, no, it's okay. They like they go full on like horrible crunching noises. And then he pulls out this little withered skeleton hand. Straight out of an effect from um, uh, Deep Rising. So it's Stephen Summers going back to the monster roots. And I would so have loved more practical effects in this film. And I know you guys absolutely love the sort of like, the, the bonkers sci-fi side of it. But like I just I love I love the Gru smaller scale Gruy impact more mystery fewer action beats w- w- would have been more in keeping with the first film I suppose they kind of complement each other as as two films but the fact that someone called this one an abomination to me suggests that a lot of people overlook the second one yeah a lot of people call it a call it a shitty sequel or whatever yeah. I'm like no it's freaking awesome. <laughs> But I am interested in seeing what might have happened in a different version of it where they weren't stretched to the limit in terms of what they had to put out. In, like with this, It's very ambitious as a film. And if they'd maybe had an extra year, how great would that have looked? Like a lot, mm. like, you know, and it would have probably cost more because you've got to pay a whole bunch of people for an extra year. Maybe just a few more months and like, you know, scale back some of the action sequences. But you know, this is all woulda, shoulda, coulda. I just, I'm glad that cinema has gone, come on leaps and bounds, and that they, like, this was a vital stepping stone in sort of showing people maybe what not to do. Don't do a Scorpion King like this. <laughs> well, uh, two years is a really insane turnaround time for yeah. movies of that size. Bingo, I mean, yeah. Even now, like Marvel, almost never does that with their direct sequels, and they're about as well-oiled a machine as you get in the business. <laughs> And then there's the moment which me and James have talked about already, but we're going to talk about it now so people don't have yes. to go and track down that show which James was on, even though it's really, really good. You can find it on School of Movies, uh, every, School of Everything Else Archive. Um, it is some choice shot arrangement. Brendan Fraser reads the stereo instructions on the wall. James, do you want to describe this one? Because like, I, I need to give you more, more, more time in the spotlight. But- I, I just love this moment. <laughs> uh, and, and as, as you say, like, so Brendan Fraser, having denied that he is a warrior for God and denied all this prophecy and denied all this, this predestined stuff. I do like the retroactive happening- Magi stuff, by the way. The whole, like, oh, he was a Magi all along. Just didn't- I do, I do like that. And I, I, do you know what? I remember watching the, the film the, like, the first couple of times and thinking, no, nah, hang on. I'm sure he didn't have a tattoo in the first film. But you go back and you watch The Mummy, he's like, you never see that part of his arm. Yeah. He's always got like a, a bracer on or a sleeve or something. It's like, ah, nice. clever, well done. Um, um, no, it's one of those kind of, right, it's his own line. Okay, now I'm a believer, because you have to be, because we've got 10 minutes left of the film and we kind of need you to come around to this. <laughs> um, the, I love him shouting at Jonathan, you know, the, the scepter, it's a spear. It doesn't look like a spear. It's because it opens up into it, like just a proper shouting, shouting at an idiot across a room. <laughs> So essentially, right, we've worked out he is a destined warrior for God. Mm-hmm. He happens to have the destined warrior for God weapon that will take down the PS2 boss. And um, that's the power up that you needed earlier in the level. He attempts to throw it. Um, no, sorry. No. Um, Jonathan, Jonathan throws, throws it and Emotep goes yoink. <laughs> yoink with a very kind of flashy, spinny thing. And he goes, ha ha ha, now I shall rule the world. Yes, very diabolical villain. 
Yeah. Brendan dives through, catches it because it, you know, drawn out shot. It looks like Imhotep is going to. Oh, and they set that up, by the way. Uh, In the beginning, they throw a snake at him, and he does like a Frank Drebin, ah, like the towel in the face, and then throws the snake back. Then they throw a knife at him, and he catches it and throws it back. It's the Jack Burton thing. Yeah, the reflexes. Yeah, that's always incredible. So it's, it's a power it's, of three. So you get those two there, and then you forget about the fact that Rick's really good at catching things. I love, I love it as well. Like they, they just, they're really just, just nonchalant about how good Rick is with with knives and stuff like that. What's it when he's um, talking to our death on the on the the dirigible? It's like you know, if you embrace it, if you accept this part of yourself, then you can do anything. It's like, yeah, it sounds great. He says while flicking a knife and doing this incredible thing that should have chopped his wrist off. Yeah. Um, Rick intercepts the scepter. Scorpion King still coming after him, stumbles back and then stabs the scepter into the Scorpion King. Yeah, the Scorpion King pretty much falls on him and there's this big, wide, epic shot of this thing happening and no one else is on the screen. And it's a really good photograph, Adrian Biddle. Arnold Vosloo just runs in, crouches and goes... And it looks like he's forgotten where he's meant to be. Like I've 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 done a little Andram sometimes. I've done I've done I've done like a musical and a few a few gang shows. It is hilarious when you do have someone have to run across the stage because they've realised they're in the wrong place. <laughs> it's I mean, it, we, we were watching it earlier today. And it was like okay, you framed this shot and Arnold should be there already. And as it the impaling happens, Arnold shouts nigh then. Like, uh, also, yeah. they even set up that nigh means no by having nigh means nay. Anuk and Amun shout nigh, nigh at him as he's running into the uh, tomb to uh, to take on the Scorpion King. So it's this weird moment of like, he, he kind of like ruins the composition of the shot. He's late in a comical fashion. And it's like the whole story seems to be now going on without him in a film that's his name. <laughs> he's the damn mummy. <laughs> So, like, it's this so- all accounts for, like, so, like, immediately afterwards when he's grabbed by the infrared, he's like, oh, I just may as well go down to hell. It's not about me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's so odd because you could just cut to his face in a yep. close-up. Like, why Why wouldn't you just cut to <laughs> shot? Yeah. Much better to have him run on a little bit too late. It's like just a few <laughs> seconds cute, too late. I really Which want is... to see the behind the scenes, the actual like footage of them filming that moment, because there's <laughs> got to be a director's like Arnold. Arnold, it's you. Ar- Arnold, what, what? Arnold, put down your coffee. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! And he, he had to throw off the dressing gown he was wearing at the same time, and then run in and go nigh. <laughs> <laughs> Which is odd because Summers is like usually really good at just having his you know having his shit together for this there's there's a little moment where you're introduced to izzy and he gets jonathan out of the way so that you don't have the two comedy characters clashing against each other when you're introducing one of them and you have that by jonathan holding his scepter and saying oh i can't help with the bags my hands full rick grabbing the scepter getting him out of the way and that's why he's got the one thing that Izzy will agree to go on the quest with them for, yeah. because Rick's just gesticulating around with it. Like, that shit takes planning and actual cohesive visual storytelling talent. And what happened, Stephen? What were you thinking? <laughs> 
Actually, Izzy uh, is played by Sean Parks, who's barely been in anything. Uh, if you find him funny, folks, uh, track down an ancient, now forgotten film about the UK clubbing scene from 1999, same year um, as, as the original Mummy. Uh, it's called Human Traffic, where he plays Coop, who's a DJ. And uh, he's just splendid fun in that film. I thought it was such a shame that character because Izzy could have been great. Izzy, Izzy could have been a new Benny. They overplayed the one joke that just too much. I, I, I rapidly lose count of how many times they say you got shot, shot in the arse yeah. in the first five minutes of him being there. It's like, yes, we get it. You got Did shot in the arse. Men getting shot in the arse is apparently hilarious. <laughs> they, they milk that shit in Bad Boys 2. Oh. Yeah. But I don't yeah. want to compare this film to Bad Boys 2, which is truly <laughs> hideous. I wanted to mention there's there's a tiny little detail mm-hmm. in that in that scene that that just cracks me up every time in the scene where they're you know they're talking to Izzy. It's it's a two hander between Izzy and Rick. And if you look between them in the background, there's a bathtub just out in the middle of <laughs> the area. This this junkyard, whatever it is, and there's a guy in the bathtub reading a newspaper. Never commented <laughs> on. Why is he taking a bath in the middle of the day out in public? No idea. Never commented on. Nobody references him. No one else even seems to notice that he's there. But it just, it gets me every time. Because I'm like, what? What? What the hell? (laughs) You give me that gold stick there and you can shave my head, wax my legs and use me for a surfboard. Didn't we do that in Tripoli? When did you lose your eye? Oh, I did this. I just thought it made me look more dashing. <laughs> Good work. It feels like for the Scorpion King fight, my idea was that it's Dwayne Johnson uh, and uh, he sort of like comes out and he can actually talk and they can converse and they give more time for it. But he can also, like, he, he has no intention of giving up his power to begin with. And uh, he when, when he fights them, he can turn his arms into scorpion uh, claws. They warp into them and then back to arms again. So you've got this kind of the morphing that the mummy has already established that he can control his body. And it goes without saying, he should rock bottom Rick O'Connell with one of these scorpion claws. And then you can maybe get his tail out and get him to move around with that so he can be very athletic and make it more of a wrestling match. Like having them, them fling each other all over the place. A triple threat match, which can be really compelling to watch sometimes. And just at some point, it, it requires Rick and Emotep to team up against him to actually take him down. And in the end, maybe with this, again, this is like, you know, if they'd had more time to actually think about it, and then maybe we get a reversal and Rick and the Scorpion King end up working together against Emotep to prevent Emotep getting the Scorpion King's power. Scorpion King gets a little bit of a redemption, get a little drama in there, hint at depths to his character, which you're then encouraging people to come see the spin-off of. A nice heroic badass turn from The Rock for his first cinematic outing. Just, just have the, I'll ride with you, O'Connell, at least until we kill the son of a bitch. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Yeah. And then O'Connell and him can sort of stand, like, chest to chest, talking over each other's shoulders in that macho (laughs) way. Uh, Never thought I'd trust a mummy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. um, So it's a goofy, faux, epic follow-up, but it looks and sounds great in HD, and it successfully brightens up rainy British summer Sundays after rainy British summer Sundays. 
there's plenty for kids, plenty for ladies, plenty for men. And if you're a fan of mummified pygmy warriors carrying on like the <laughs> undead gremlins and forking slaughtering hapless goons, this is the world's best exemplar of that rare trope. But an abomination, it is not. It's it's massively entertaining. It's It's got that kind of, you know, poppy jokes mixed into the action that feels very much at home in modern blockbusters, but wasn't the sort of thing you got as much. It felt yeah. very fresh in 99 and 2001 of, hey, we've got some, like, kind of almost slapsticky quips and things that undercut the action beats, not just in between the action scenes. Mm. It doesn't have the uh, character dealing with their own internal pain in a pronounced this is thematic of the whole film, the way that Marvel movies do. But it has this unformed, like, somewhat relationship to what Marvel would eventually sort of perfect as a formula. Ah, Well, when I say perfect, advance as a formula. (laughs) It sure as hell ain't perfect, and I don't use that word, and I certainly don't use it about Marvel. (laughs) I, I love the fact that Jonathan gets a moment in this movie to like be confident when he says uh, when they're they're entering the jungle area and he's you know he's gonna stop Rick, Rick's going after Alex and he and Evie are up there you know trying to snipe the pygmies and the whatever you know the the bad guys three times or four times whatever it was Gra- Fox and Hound Grand Champion <laughs> clearly like he's a damn good shot. And again, like, you get to see him, yes, he's very comedic, and he messes up a lot, but there are things he's good at, and he's clearly, in this situation, he's very competent. That's also a really sweet emotional beat between him and Evie, and it kind of gives Evie a, I mean, I don't know if it was a bum take with um, Rachel Weisz on the on the dirigible, but it gives Evie kind of another shot at, like, I really want to get my kid back, where she's saying to Jonathan, that's my son and my husband down there, make me proud, mm-hmm. which... Which, again, calls back to the the fact that he is canonically older than her, but he treats her more like a big sister. She's definitely the the big, even though she's younger physically, she's definitely, she's the more responsible adult. She's been, you know, career focused and, you know, achieving things and all of this kind of stuff. And he's he's the fuck up of the family, clearly. The, the throwaway of her saying the Bembridge scholars have been begging her to run the British Museum. It's such a, <laughs> yes. it's such a great callback. Yes. Yes. <laughs> also, the, uh, the, the the little Indiana Jones uh, hat wearing was so, pre- like, uh, like not even a wink and a nod. I was like, ah, uh, Lara, ah? Uh? And she went, what? Ah? Uh? And she went, what? And Indiana Jones? And I was like, yes. And she's like, well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and that scene between Rick and Evie with... While Alex is downstairs dealing with the bracelet and the two of them, you know, this is clearly foreplay, is nah. is just so natural. I, I love that scene so much when the two of them are just, she wants to go out adventuring and he's trying to talk her into, stay. let's stay home and be more sedate, be safe and all of this stuff. And and he gives it the old college try and she's like, nope, we're, we're going to throw ourselves into danger. <laughs> Yeah. Also, when she goes, do you want to know what heaven looks like? And he's like, maybe later. It's, yeah. it's yeah. But it also made me think, well, she actually kind of has been dead for a while. Welcome, Evie. You're in the good place. <laughs> and then gets sent back. And it's like, oh, 
So, uh, yeah. yeah, there's a whole movie in that. And she came back a different person. What came back? Weren't human. <laughs> Sorry, Maria Bello is a wonderful actress, and she did her best with a, uh, a not particularly fantastic film. Though that is a good segue to tell you that next week we're doing Pet Cemetery, the 1989 film, and the 2019 film, and the book by Stephen King. Most definitely one of his worst. Full spoilers on all of them. But I don't advise watching or reading. One of the worst films I've seen this year. You don't want to go down that road. I don't know what we're going to be doing in, in terms of mummy stuff later on. Like, we'll see what, uh, I think at the moment, and this might date, but it's Blumhouse doing the uh, Dark Universe stuff. But uh, it being not an action film would be quite interesting if it's more of a sort of a dark thriller. Yeah. I think. Oh, something else just quickly I want to comment is the fact of I desperately want a movie where you see the backstory between Lochna and Ardith Bay. Right. Because very clearly, the two of them have a long history together, and yeah. I want to know that history. <laughs> Lochner, Ardeth Bay. Yes. I also feel like uh, if somehow could bring Rick and Evie back for a, like a, a, a Force Awakens style reunion, I don't think anyone would object that much. Like, the Hell best yeah. part of the Sophia Boutal mummy film was when I saw the Book of Hamanaptra, and I'm like, oh, hey, it's the Book of the Dead. And stay tuned, folks, because after the music that's just coming up is my quick review of the 2017 The Mummy film, recorded at the time and released on Patreon. I'm going to give one last shout-out to the Alan Silvestri score, because, of course, I am, because I'm a soundtrack it, yeah. nerd. I like... I, as we said on the Mummy show, like yeah, the Jerry Goldsmith one is probably more effective, probably the the, the superior score on various metrics. But I just love this score so much. It's just it's so rousing and fun, and I think that it, it also sets the tone of look. There's no massive stakes here. This is just a romp. As I said again, like, yeah, like as I said earlier, like this is just sit down. It's when the the action scene, the, so the action music that kind of plays on on every big battle scene kind of gears up. You know, like it, it it's very much saying sit down, enjoy yourself. This is going to be fun. One of the soundtracks I still listen to. It's it's perhaps my favourite Sylvester. No, second only to Back to the Future, obviously. And I mean the entire trilogy, not just one of them. The last thing I'd say about the soundtrack is, if we have any Assassin's Creed fans, mm-hmm. Assassin's Creed Odyssey, it really feels like um, if you're coming into a fight where you know you're going to win, line up, I think it's track six, EV Kidnapped, which is the fight in the house when Ardeth turns up. It's just such a great piece of music for when you're just kicking ass. It's brilliant. <laughs> Let's finish on that then. Evie kidnapped, and then after The Mummy 2017, Sandcastles. Wicked. Thank you all very, very much for being on these shows. Where can people find your stuff? We'll start with James. You can find me at Bond and Beyond. It's a not even very remotely regular Bond podcast. We're actually on a bit of an extended break at the moment um, while I've, I've had a, a second young agent. Um, but we're hoping to record some episodes soon. It's bondbeyondpod.tumblr.com, and it's on all good podcasting platforms. I also run a blog, uh, Nonviolent Game of the Day, N-V-G-O-T-D, that's correct, .tumblr.com. And it's honestly, it's just a paragraph and a, and a picture of a nonviolent game every, well, as close to every day as I can manage. Hmm. But it's just to kind of show that there is, there is more to video games than guns and gore. And hmm. I'm trying to spread that word. Debbie? You can find me at either sequentially-yours.com. Uh, well, he talks about comics, and I'm usually on when we do movie reviews. Uh, we always have a really good time talking about that. And then on Twitter, 
at uh, Bastet8300. Um, I'm very active on Twitter and love to talk. Message me if you want. And Brendan. You can find me on the Twitters at BLC Agnew. Um, I do movie chat and I also occasionally post pictures of my own little pygmy um, who is growing up at an alarming rate. Um, I, I can also occasionally uh, occasionally contribute to synapse.co, that's C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot C-O, and I also write reviews on my blog at normannerd.blogspot.com. Stick around for The Tom Cruise. This is Evie Kidnap. Take it away, Silvestri.
an eerie sight, for my monster from his slab began to rise. And suddenly, to my surprise, he did the match. He did the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. He did the match. It got on in a flash. He did the match. He did the monster match. Right, so I saw The Mummy today, uh, the 2017 new launching of the Dark Universe for Universal Studios. This is their great dark hope. This is the uh, movie that's going to launch a potentially endless franchise of um, interconnected films, uh, rehashing, sorry, sorry, uh, retelling in interesting new ways. And I do use that word wrongly universal films of old so the wolfman and well not not the wolfman it's not on the slate uh, dracula well okay not dracula it's not on the slate frankenstein actually no there's no frankenstein frankenstein's wife what's it called bride of frankenstein yeah that's the next one starring javier bardem as the bride of frankenstein a hunchback of notre dame so a deformed young man who's horribly manipulated by uh, a cleric that will also be one of these universal monsters that's brought back to the fore. And a Phantom of the Opera. So, you know, a deformed young man who's gifted musically. And murders people because he's obsessed with a woman. So that's going to be blockbuster gold. So what do you want to know about The Mummy 2017, Sharon? Uh, well, first of all, I think the most crucial question is, given that it's intended to kickstart this... Oh, not just intended. After the Universal logo, it goes all the way around again and you get a dark earth and it goes... And it's like dark universe logo. So they've got a whole logo figured out. Very, very definitely. They have a logo. It's not like Dracula Untold where they were like tentatively... This might, might no, lead they're, they're to... they're absolutely certain. They're like, this, this is, is the one now. This is the We've taken a 264 by 300 pixel photograph of the uh, lead cast of this series uh, moving forwards, and, uh, and we're very proud of it. Oh, I found out today that that picture of the cast, uh, they weren't actually all in the same room together. They photoshopped them all together. So that, that was intended to generate buzz for the uh, series. It was a move of panic when they saw The Mummy and realised what kind of box office it was probably going to get. Okay. Um, So my question is, does it launch a franchise? Effectively, yes. As long as it makes $800 million this weekend. Is it going to? No. It did not. The 2017 Mummy made $410 million all told, which is less than half a Venom, and it garnered only a 15% freshness rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is less than half a Venom. It can't! It literally can't, not with Wonder Woman doing the rounds. She's only a week in, and she's, she's hot right now. She is just clanging that anvil with her stone hammer. And, uh, yeah, she's gonna, um... She's going to eat, gobble up all of the mummy's juicy uh, money. Okay, so let me let me talk you through the actual plot of this. And full warning, folks, this is absolute spoilers for the whole thing. This is the complete synopsis. So only listen if you definitely don't want to see it or you don't care about the whole thing being spoiled first. But don't pay money for the mummy. That, that's that's my advice. And uh, this is quite fun. 
Just me talking about it. Uh, at the very beginning, uh, as with all the Mummy films, uh, it starts in about 10,000 AD uh, with some Templar knights. And uh, they bury one of their... She's looking puzzled, but this is so obvious. This is how the mummy starts. 10,000 AD. 10,000 AD. Oh, 10, just 1,000 AD. AD hasn't happened yet. Uh, it's a sci-fi um, <laughs> written it's by Mobius. It's uh, Sorry, it's 1,000 AD. Okay. They're burying one of their compatriots with a, a red gemstone, the philosopher's stone-looking thing. As soon as they bury him, uh, the wall gets crashed in by a tunnelling device because it's actually cut forwards a thousand years and it's an underground tunnelling train operation of London. And in doing so, they find this bunch of knights' graves. And this ends up on the news, as it would, you know, because it's like we were tunnelling under London and we found a bunch of sort of ancient historical graves. So that's just, you know, headline news. She's she's looking forward. Like they wouldn't actually they be would, talking about this. They were tunnelling under London. Oh, yeah, to create a new train. And they found ancient historical graves. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah you're going to find ancient historical graves. It's, it's London. There's a lot of shit under there. Don't want to go down that road. <laughs> Uh, and Russell Crowe turns up and a guy goes, hey, well, you can't interrupt my dig. And he holds up an envelope behind him and he, go, he looks at it. And I, I don't know what's on the envelope, but it shuts the guy up. So um, so far, so Volcano, by the way. Yeah. And, Apart from the historical graves. And Russell Crowe goes, we found it. After all these years, we found it. Then cut to... Um, I don't know how, but they found me. Run for it, Marty. Sorry. Oh, no, actually, no, no. Uh, Russell Crowe actually tells us the story of the mummy. Okay. Which feels like it should have come at the very beginning, rather than six minutes in. Back in 3,000 years ago, uh, there was a pharaoh who had a daughter called Amanat. And the daughter was like training with a stick because she's going to be the first proper queen of the Nile. And she's been promised this kingdom. And so she's, uh, you know, really looking forward to it. And then the king's second wife has a baby son. And Amanat's pissed. Oh, she's furious because she was promised the Nile and uh, uh, and all of Egypt, and now she can't have it. So she does what anyone would do. She makes a pact with Set, the uh, Egypt version of the devil. Uh, it's a blood pact, blood magic, Game of Thrones style. And uh, she's like, right, so what do I have to do? So she's like, blood, and it goes into some milk. And she's naked because you would be. Then this sort of like zombie thing turns up behind her she goes oh god she gets like awesome tattoos all over her body and scarification then it's like you know what you have to do so she goes and she cuts her dad's throat just kills him dead and then she goes to the newborn baby kills the baby oh yeah just like boom. like one of the first things we see in this film by by minute eight is baby's blood splattering all over this woman's tattooed face and i'm like yeah, that's, uh, that's classy, Universal. Keep it classy. Then she's about to stab her lover in the chest with a special knife that will do something very special. Then she gets shot in the neck with blow darts because the Pharaoh's guards have come in and they've prevented the ritual from completing. And um, she drops the knife and the knife has that philosopher's stone in the end. And that's the stone that they found. As a punishment for um, her terrible, terrible treatment of the royal family. Um, she suffers the hum die, although they don't call it the hum die. She's mummified, and as Russell Crowe says, she's mummified alive. And they bury her in a sarcophagus. Well, they don't put scarabs in there, because that would be like just as bad as Emotep. And they don't do anything worse than that. In fact, they do less than that. They just sort of bury her. So does, he get, does she get a tongue cut out? No. Well, I mean, they mummified her, and she's like... Mm. I'm assuming that probably includes... Oh, no, she's got a tongue later. 
Oh, but then again, she regenerates like Emotep. It's not clear. Probably. So they wrap her in bandages and put her in a box. Yeah. And then they put the box, ah, not in Egypt, Mesopotamia. Oh, so put that box in another box. Mail that box to yourself. In a very deep well. Yeah. Then uh, we cut to modern day Mesopotamia. There are some dudes shooting statues and defiling ancient Egyptian ruins. And Tom Cruise sort of looks at them uh, from uh, on top of the hill and he sort of looks at them and then goes, right, we can go down there and get the treasure. And his buddy uh, says, oh, I don't know about that. I don't really care about treasure that much. And, he, and Tom Cruise goes, right. And then he cuts his buddy's water bag open so that he's like, ah, the nearest water is like a day's ride away and he goes no the nearest water is where I'm going to get the treasure so you can come with me and how are you going to take it with you now that your water bag has a hole in it well he'll repair it or he'll just drink some and then be happy with that I don't know but he's like, where's not your... a man who thinks ahead, clearly. And Tom Cruise, whose name is Tom Cruise. I literally have forgotten this guy's name, so I'm calling him Tom Cruise. Okay. Obviously, um, you know, he's the, the, the hero of this thing. He is a 53-year-old mercenary. That's it. We don't know if he's ever been married before. We don't know if he has kids. We don't know of any relationships he's ever had apart from with this guy and a woman. And both of them seem to be kind of, we don't like you that much. Uh, and he's an ass bag. He's a thief. Russell Crowe later on says, and he has no discernible soul. And it's like, whoa. Eh, okay. Um, it says so here on my soul counter. So, yeah. So we start off with this shithead. Then there's an airstrike from a drone, which then flies off. And it blows the whole street sky high. And um, everyone who was fighting Tom Cruise is dead now. And Tom Cruise looks at this hole in the ground and it's like blown open. And there's this very deep well, which obviously leads down to Princess Amanat. Uh, she's looking at so me funny. they use a drone strike yeah. as a plot device yeah. to get Tom Cruise in a hole. Yeah. But all the enemies are dead now. So it's you shouldn't worry, Sharon. You shouldn't worry. They're not going to shoot him anymore okay. because that cutscene has happened now. And so he lowers himself. But before he lowers himself Worms into the hole, um, his his like black commander turns up and does the a pwn thing or the Sergeant um, Johnson from Halo thing. And he goes, son, you can't do... I mean, I'm not even sure if I'm your commanding officer at this point. I'm a soldier and you've got like some fatigues on. And a woman turns up and goes, I know this man. We spent the night together. And Tom Cruise goes, yeah, well, it was totally exhausting for you. And I left you alone because you had to sleep because you were so exhausted from all the love making. And she goes, oh, it wasn't that good. And I went, yeah, Tom Cruise is probably very, very good in bed. And it's important that they made that point. Anyway, um, the woman, I can't remember her name, uh, they go into the hole, her and his little mate and Tom Cruise, and they find the uh, tomb of Princess Amanat. His little mate, by the way, is named Sergeant Vale, and he's played by Jake Johnson, who everyone will have seen now, in Into the Spider-Verse as Peter B. Parker, the schlubby one. What a complete waste of this guy in this movie. And Tag, a rubbish film. And Jurassic World. And Bad Neighbours. And he was the principal in 21 Jump Street. Give Jake Johnson more stuff to do. So anyway, they're down there in the mummy's tomb. And they're like, what's this? This is just silver stuff. It's mercury. And it says, ah, it was part of the mummification process. And it's like, ah, well, it, you know, they didn't realise that it sent you nuts. And, uh, and then killed you. And he was like, yeah, well, they do now. And then they keep looking around. And I will say at this point, I liked the set design. 
of the actual tomb. The uh, like when they blow the hole open, there's this big sort of screaming uh, stone face at the top, which just looks really ominous and then when they lower themselves down this incredibly deep empty shot it's like a giant earthen cavity this was not carved out and you know it's it's impressive and when they're down there i mean it's not the tomb out of the 1999 the mummy it it, is impressive to look at and then they find princess amanat and tom cruise is like well i'm going to shoot this thing boing and she gets boinged up out of all of this this pool of mercury where they've been keeping her because the mercury is to keep her in the land of the living they won't let her go to the land of the dead and tom starts getting flashbacks <gasps> i remember being in the desert and princess Amanat was talking to me i can't remember what she said oh it was in the desert they put the sarcophagus on a plane and go right i've seen the trailer for this film we got to get to the plane sequence so let's come on come on quick chop 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 time is money so the, they then they do the plane sequence which is where his little mate like who was sleeping, gets up and is all sort of weird-eyed and starts to try to cut free the sarcophagus. And the soldiers are all, hey, you can't do that. And then he starts sort of walking forwards and he stabs a soldier. And Tom's like, oh, I don't know what's happening. And they're like, you know, don't come any closer, I'll shoot you. And he comes at them with a knife. And so Tom shoots him. And then again, and he gets back up again. And then again, uh, some crows fly out of the sky. And then they they bird strike into the plane. And the whole plane's going down. It's spinning round and round. And they've bought that bindle from um, Christopher Nolan's back garden. And uh, they're going round and round and round. So they're spinning round and round. There's stuff going everywhere. And then Tom's like, get out of here, woman. I'm going to save your life. And he pulls her parachute and flings her out of the plane. And then he's like, oh, my God, we're going to crash into a small church in Surrey. And then they do. But there was a bit where he screamed in the first trailer. And he goes, <laughs> and everyone th- found that hilarious. Uh, and they were, like, adding that to memes and gifts everywhere. <laughs> Just Tom Cruise screaming. This is Sparta! And they changed the scream. I was like, ah, because they didn't want people to laugh at that point. Woman is in a hospital like, oh, I'm so sad because Tom, I didn't know him or like him. But, you know, he saved my life. So that was nice of him. Cut to the uh, mortuary and Tom wakes up. and He's like, oh, my God, I'm awake. And there's not a scratch on me. He, he, he looks down at himself. I swear he was wearing like a surgical stocking when he when cadavers are stored. Do they have to wear like one white surgical stocking, or am I just imagining that no. to stop their veins hemorrhaging? No. No. Okay. And then he gets up and he's like, "Oh my god, what's going on?" And then his buddy, who I'm going to call Jack at this point, turns up and goes, "Hey, how's it going, buddy?" And he's like, "What? You're dead?" And he's like, "Yeah." And he's all corpsified. And he's like, "You're cursed, Tom Cruise." And Tom's like, "What?" And he's like, "Yeah, totally cursed. Oh, she's totally cursed you." And he's like, I don't even know what's going on. And then woman turns up and Tom turns around and goes, oh, you nearly saw my winky. And he runs and like hides because, you know, if you've been in a near-death plane experience and you've woken up without a scratch on you, that is your chief concern. That woman who has already seen seen your wang is going to see it again in its not upright position. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Terrifying, I know. Uh, Of all the terrifying things in this movie, that may be the most terrifying. Tom Cruise's... Tom Cruise's fear of being of of seeing his his flaccid wang seen. I mean, frankly, he should just stand there, just you know, free ball in it, tackle out and go, "What the hell has happened to me?" And then the police are like, "I'll cover it up, mate," because 
that's what Edgar Wright would do. <laughs> or just have the little corpsified friend lean in from the side of the screen and hold something in front of him. Yeah. Can any of you guys see this this guy? Didn't think so. Right. Um <laughs> So then we cut to a little church in Surrey which has been ruined by this plane and there are a bunch of cops sort of wandering around it. Police, like British bobbies, they're practically wearing those like boob hats. What are they called? Because you used to work for the police. Helmets. Helmets. Helmets then, fine. And then one of them finds a corpse on the floor and the corpse goes, and it it, it starts to suck him dry of all of his bits and organs. And then his mate goes, what's going on? Runs over and then the corpse goes, and then sucks him dry and then starts staggering towards the the nearby pond. And uh, then it goes, and it necromances them back from the dead. And they're sort of staggering along with a lot less meat on their bones and... And she has some more meat on her bones and she's totally pissed and angry and she wants to go and do something. It's not entirely sure yet, but she's definitely going to do it, probably. And then we cut to Tom Cruise in a pub and he's drinking a lot of beer and talking to the woman. And the woman's like, what's happening? He's like, I don't know. And then Jack turns up and sort of waves at him. All corpse of fighters. like, I don't know. And then Jack's like, come into the toilets with me. And then he goes into the toilet. And he's like, get out of here, Jack. You look like meatloaf. Jack's like, no, no, no. You're cursed. I mean, I know this is effectively the same piece of information again. But I'm going to give it to you again. Uh, you're cursed. You've got to break the curse. Uh, the only way you can break the curse is to accept what Princess Amanat wants to do. And then he's like, this is all just a bunch of gobbledygook. I'm getting out of here. And then he leaves, gets in a van, and drives straight to the church where Princess Amanat is waiting for him because um, he had to move it on to the next section. Oh, no, that's, that's actually, what happens first is uh, he goes out into the street and then some rats crawl over him. And he goes, ah! And it's like he's fighting with weasels. Ah! Amanat looms over him and goes, ah! Uh, and then he goes to the church to, um, to to basically just walk straight into her clutches. Then a bunch of mummies turn up and grab him, pull him over onto a table, and then Princess Amanat jumps on top of him, licks his face, like then pulls his T-shirt up and then looks at his lovely, big, busty chest. Busty? Like, muscular. Like, oh, I mean, he's not Thor, but, you know, he's better than me. And she's like, oh, let's look at this. And she's, like, licking it with her, her decayed tongue, sticking her fingers in his mouth. It's disgusting! And he's like, ah, help me! And whaps off the top of this statue, and the dagger that she was going to use before is in there. Now, I don't know if they omitted a vital piece of information that suggested that that dagger would be inside that statue or she knew where it was and that's why she they were flying direct to it i don't know it seems like a remarkable coincidence that they would crash exactly there unless she wanted to crash exactly there which makes her super powerful because of the bird strike so maybe the templars hid it there and they hid the knife in one tomb and then the stone in another. Anyway, let's just say that they did. And we have to infer that because it's never explained. Because she suddenly got the knife. 
then woman turns up and you go and, and Tom's like what we're busy doing something then she's about to stab him but she doesn't because she notices the stone's not there Tom gets up and runs away they get in a van they drive off and she's like what's going on and Tom's like I don't know what's going on but I'm definitely not going to believe everything I'm seeing here it's mercury poisoning or something like that and then she finds that he has driven back to the same church and she's like he's, she's in your head and she's walking towards the van he's like oh my god and she's properly mummied out now like so she looks like a female version of Arnold Boslu kind of they're driving through the countryside a bunch of mummies turn up jump on top of the van and I can't see shit at this point and I'm just thinking it's the same thing they, they just can't light a scene now they used to be able to but they can't now you couldn't film at night with old film cameras and you can now with digital cameras. But you still can't see shit. Just because you can technically film at night doesn't mean it's lit correctly. It looks like ass. This film looks more than anything else like a version of Suicide Squad without all that candy colouring that they added in post. So, Princess Amanat comes bearing down on them after the vans crashed. And it was a really like, horrible crash. And it was like, ow, that, that actually hurt with how loud it was. And then she gets harpooned and a bunch of dudes sort of turn up and sort of shoot her in the shoulders and stuff. And like, boom, 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 boom. And it's like, right, any agency you thought that this mummy was going to have, forget it. Because basically from this point onwards, she's reactive rather than proactive. They're, they're brought to a, a, a science lab thing and he's walking past and like I saw Gilman, the creature from the Black Lagoon's hand in a jar and then a skull with vampire fangs. And this is the lab of Dr. Abraham Van Helsing. And that would make sense, wouldn't it, folks? But no, Russell Crowe turns up. I was going to say Jack Russell. Jack Russell turns up and goes, how's it going? I'm uh, Dr. Dr. Abraham Van Helsing, a doctor of some things. A fellow of Oxford. And he's just sort of mugging around the place, talking about this and that. The first thing that happens is Tom Cruise goes, who are you? And he goes, well, the more interesting thing would be, who are you? And it's like, okay, right, now you've got a chance to explain stuff. And he just reads through his fucking track record. You were a Marine, you were a special type of soldier, a different type of soldier, another type of soldier. And you're a thief, and you have no soul. <laughs> what? So, like, and I still don't know anything about you. And it's like, you just drew attention to the fact that we don't know anything about our hero and are at this point ceasing to care. And he's like, let me show you my... I don't know why he's Bowie. Let me show you... <laughs> that Prin- would have been way more interesting, I suspect. Possessed by the spirit of Bowie. Let me show you Princess Amanat. I have her in chains down here. And he takes her him, them across to Loki's containment unit in the Avengers. And she's there and she's in chains and she's being embalmed with fucking mercury. And they're like, what are you doing? Well, we do three things. We observe evil we contain evil and we destroy evil that's what we're doing in this society and these guys call themselves prodigium that's their shield name nobody wants to say the words the league of extraordinary gentlemen it feels like the league of extraordinary gentlemen without the fun Ooh. it's a super self-serious version of that right and so russell crowe goes and my name is Dr. Jekyll. And then he's like, and I need this serum all the time. And he like injects himself with serum because otherwise I get just really interested in the destruction of others. 
Tom talks to Princess Aminat and she goes, you were, oh, the reincarnation of that guy I was going to stab with that thing. What I was going to do was not kill him, you, but imbue him, you, with the spirit of Set on Earth. I was going to make you an immortal god. Russell Crowe's like, now this is a bloody good idea. We can bring the gem here, because my boys have got it, and then we'll stab you, turn you into this Set thing, and then destroy you. And Tom goes, not a good idea. Don't like it. Don't want to be destroyed. And he's like, oh, we've got to do this. Otherwise, he's, uh, you know, there's, there's a great danger that this... I don't remember him actually saying a good, compelling reason. I think I remember thinking no one would ever tell someone else that they have to kill someone in such a jolly fashion without it being either A, a joke, or B, sign that they are deranged. Or possibly both. Or both. But it's very badly handled, and Tom's like, I don't want to do this. Should we move on to the next action sequence? Let's move on to the next action sequence, because Aminat escapes. You never guess that, because Loki escapes, and then Hulk hulks out. You see that? You see what they did there? Mm. They turned this into the Avengers. Yeah. Does that mean Tom Cruise is Captain America? Probably. With all his marine marineness and soldier soldierness. Let's say yeah, shall we? He's Captain America and Iron Man, because he was going to be Iron Man, remember? He was in the running to play Tony Stark and then dropped out because he wanted like more control over it. It was going to be a paramount thing with him and uh, Wagner uh, producing, and then it just didn't happen in the end. But yeah, so he's Iron Man and Thor and uh, Captain America all at once. And uh, Russell Crowe is Nick Fury. and, And Hulk. And Hulk. And the woman is just a woman. She has no ability to fight or do anything. She can be kidnapped, though, and captured. So that's that's good. And put in danger, uh, which obviously Tom doesn't want to happen. He cares about her so very much. So Aminat gets out, and she's, like, chucking people around the place, turning them into mummies and that. And the best part of the movie happens, and it's, like, six, six seconds long at most. Woman hits a mummy with a big book. Boom! Tosses the book down and it goes... And it's the book from The Mummy. With the star on the front and the the thing. I went, ah! Okay, that means that everything that happened in The Mummy, The Mummy Returns, The Scorpion King, and The Mummy Tomb of the Dragon Emperor also all definitely happened within this universe. All right. And that was the thing that made me think the most about this. Technically, if nothing else happens of this universe, this is the Mummy 4. <laughs> so, Aminat's roiling about the place and Tom runs outside and goes, I remember seeing the trailer. There's a bit where we have to run away and London gets covered in a sandstorm. And his, the woman says, isn't that just what happened in Thor the Dark World and X-Men Apocalypse? And he goes, yeah, but more boring. And they run out into London, and Aminat's like, I guess I'll wander after you. Boy, sandstorm! And it's got my face in it! Yeah? Anyone? No? Forget it. And then they go to the underground, um, and there's a bus, and then Jack turns up and goes, hey, you should go underground. He's not called Jack, he's just basically fulfilling the role of Jack from an American werewolf in London. Yes, I got that. Honestly, I have been sitting and waiting. I was like, right, I want to get to the end of this film because there's been hints and possibly... Like, seeing Tom Cruise, like, sitting with Dr. Jekyll, who's also Mr... Oh, he also... He fights Mr. Hyde. Like, um, Russell Crowe turns into Mr. Hyde. I'm like, right, okay. We've had a Mr. Hyde from League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. We've had a Mr. Hyde from uh, Van Helsing, the Hugh Jackman film. Uh, We've had three Hulks. So what are they going to do? 
It's Russell Crowe. Just... <clears throat> Dr. Jekyll wants to kill you. Why don't you hang out with your old mate Henry and we'll sort of let you live? And uh, Tom's like, fuck this shit, kicks him in the face and runs away. Well, okay. I mean, it's not quite the Avengers Hulk, Hulk out scene at all. Um, so I've been like waiting and waiting because seeing him up there with Dr. Jekyll and the, uh, Sophie Batal, who is the mummy, and um, Johnny Depp, who is the Invisible Man, and Javier Bardem, who is the Frankenstein, and Tom Cruise... And it's like, right, and, and who is Tom Cruise? Oh, he is a, a mercenary named Tim Gymnas. And I'm like, right, who is also? This whole movie I've been going, who is also? There's only a few people he could be. He could be a Dracula. He could be a Gillman. He could be a Bride of Frankenstein. He could be a Hunchback. He could be a Phantom. But more than likely than anything else, he could be the Wolfman. And I was like, right, okay, set... So he's going to have, like, the head of a dog, so that kind of ties in. Like, no. Is that Anubis? Anubis does. Hang on. I believe set... I want to say crocodile? Set. Deity. See? What is that head? Like a jackal head? Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, he's a god of the desert, storms, disorder, violence, and foreigners in ancient Egyptian religion. In ancient Greek, the god's name is given to Seth, set animal. Oh, in art, set is usually depicted as an enigmatic creature referred to by Egyptologists as the set animal, a beast resembling no known creature, although it could be seen as a composite of an aardvark, a donkey, a jackal, or a fennec fox. The animal has a curved snout, long rectangular ears, a thin forked tail, and a canine body. Right. Now, Tom Cruise could have turned into an aardvark, and that would have suddenly made this movie so much better. He's like, what kind of to eat ants. I don't know where I got crocodile from. I do apologise. Right, Ant-Man better watch though, his back. This bugs me. It happens when they do Egyptian myth and it happens when they do Greek myth quite a lot of the time. They persist in taking gods of the underworld yeah. and making them parallels with the Christian devil. Russell Crowe literally does that in words. He says he's basically the Christian devil on earth. It, ugh. Yep. It's annoying to me because it basically this... Any was kind like, of mythologist the, or the, the, theologian is going to be annoyed as well. The propaganda that was set up by set up. Christian evangelists when they were basically trying to discredit the pagan faiths in whatever country they were trying to take over. And they would um, hook the pagan gods in with the Christian devil. And they're not. They're not. It, it's not the same thing. And uh, underworld gods particularly generally have a very positive role. And they're meant to be, you know, they end things when it's time for them to end. And Death is are... not something to be t- afraid of. Absolutely. Especially since you died at the age of 28 of old age and fear in those days. So, but yeah, it it just it bothers me when they persist in doing that when they update myth stuff. Okay, so I was thinking, okay, right, here is how I expect this to basically end: Tom Cruise gets stabbed with the dagger and then turns into a wolf man, and then it's like, yeah, you didn't think this would be a secret wolf man film, but it's a secret wolf man film. But and and he and Amanat have an almighty ruck. That's what I expected it to be. Let's see if I was right. Uh, Tom Cruise runs into the underground, which is full of mummies. She's like, come to me, my mummies, and attack him. And then they fall into uh, some water. And, um, oh, that scream that I mentioned before that... uh, Actually did turn up when he got attacked by rats. 
And I was like, oh, so they kept the scream. Good, good. As long as they, as long so as it's, it's in there rat somewhere. Scream, not an aeroplane scream. Indeed. Okay. Okay. Um, as long as we know. Yeah, that screams better than everything else in the movie. Then they, they fall into some water, and then there's a bunch of mummies swimming through the water. Tom Cruise tries to save the woman, but she gets snatched away by um, Imhotep Amanat. Definitely not Imhotep. That's actually literally a different guy in this same universe. Amanat drags woman over to a corner of the underground which is flooded and Tom is like trying to swim to her because he just really wants to save her. He grabs her and then pulls her up and then a bunch of mummies grab them both. Uh, But she's drowned already. She's dead. She's totally dead. She's dead. And he's sad. And he kneels there like, oh, I'm sad. The only other person I have any evidence of ever having a conversation with just died. (laughs) And my other buddy, Jack... Still having conversations with me, but he's also dead. And uh, Amanat turns up and she's like, look, just just give in to this, okay? Can I just stab you, please? Just Can we make this quick? And uh, Tom's like, well, you've got somewhere to be. And she's like, well, the movie's only an hour and 45 minutes. We've got to establish a whole dark universe. We've had a Mr. Hyde. We've had a mummy. Can we make with the Wolfman, please? And they end up grappling... And she smacks him all over the place and just smacks him like to the ground onto some steps, throws him around, and then eventually he stabs himself with the uh, the the dagger with the stone in it, having stolen it from her. Like she's like hold gripping it in one hand and gripping him in the other, and then she throws him. Then he's holding it, and it's like okay, thieves cannot take weapons out of people's hands when they are gripping them hard. That you can't even do an Indiana Jones switcheroo there. He had nothing to, like, you'll know when something that you were holding in your hand has gotten. And he's like, well, it doesn't matter, whatever. He stands up and is like, right, werewolf it out. And then he lies on his back and goes, and his face goes a bit wibbly. I'm like, right, okay, wolf man? No? Jackal man? No? Monkeyan? <laughs> Slive? Anyone? Settle for the blue hard mark at this point. And then he, like, picks her up by the neck and slams her against the wall because he's now got superpowers and goes, and then he slams her against another thing. I'm like, are we just watching Tom Cruise beat up Sophia Batal here? Like, I've been in Hollywood 40 years more than you have! And, like, smashing her around the place. And I just thought, this is horrible, and it's horribly out, like, mismatched. Like, I was expecting werewolf versus mummy. Like, that's a fight. This is just... Tom Cruise beating up a woman who was in Star Trek. And she was in Kingsman, which she was the one with the, the blades. Mm. And she was kind of awesome in that. And honestly, um, she really sort of gets into the being a mummy. But then he sucks all the mummy out of her and she turns into a husk. So she had no agency at all. She wasn't really there to affect change. Tom staggers over to woman who's dead and, and then she wakes up because he's now the master of death, you see, because he uh, was set. And he brings her back from the underworld. Remember the end of uh, Hellboy 1, that really touching scene between Hellboy and Liz? It, it's kind of like that, only he scares her back into her body. He goes... <laughs> and does a scary wolf face at her and she as a ghost screams and leaps into her own body and then she she looks around and goes tom where are you tom cruise and he's in the shadows going go away don't look at me and i'm like okay get some werewolf in there and he turns around a little bit and you can almost see that he's not entire like maybe his hair might have gotten a bit longer i don't know then it cuts to princess amanat being embalmed in um mercury at um uh, Mr. Hyde, uh, Dr. Jekyll's secret hideout, the Prodigium Treehouse, I believe it's called. And the woman and Dr. Jekyll talk at length about Tom Cruise. 
and um, she's like, you know, where where is he? Do you know, I think we can find him. And um, so whenever Tom's not on screen, everybody has to be asking themselves, where "Where's Tom?" That was exactly what popped into my head. And Russell Crowe gives a long monologue about there is light in all of us and darkness. And now those two powers are at war inside Tom Cruise's body. And it's up to him as to which he will listen to. And there is to be a storm coming. And Tom Cruise will be an important figure in this. And Tom Cruise is in the desert. Going to get on a horse and gallop in slow motion and go to the pyramids and look for treasure. Yay! And Jack is now back from the dead. And he's like, I'm really happy that you brought me back from the dead. And he's like, there's your spirit of adventure. Gallop, gallop, gallop. And I'm like, will Tom Cruise give in to the darkness? Probably not. The end. This should not have been called The Mummy. It should have been called The Tom Cruise. This was not a film about The Mummy. It was a film about Tom Cruise becoming super. Going from a man with terrible, terrible flaws that make us think he's a prick that we don't want to know anything about. They don't sound like interesting flaws. No, no, no. A man with terrible, terrible flaws being a shallow prick that we don't care about at all to the same thing with superpowers that we are incredibly ill-defined and inconsistent and I'm going to go ahead and guess we will never know what the fuck Tom Cruise has as these special powers because after watching this film everyone's going to be walking out going ugh and unless Universal pig-headedly carry on with all of these films no one's going to give a flying fuck this was a dreadful mistake Written by David Kep, who wrote Jurassic Park, but also Jurassic Park The Lost World, and Spider-Man and Mission Impossible, but also Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Chris McQuarrie, who wrote The Usual Suspects, Edge of Tomorrow, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, that's the fifth one, like my second favourite, but also Jack the Giant Slayer. Story by John Spates, who wrote the original Alien Engineers. And he wrote Doctor Strange, but he also wrote Passengers, and he also wrote The Darkest Hour 3D. Alex Kurtzman, who wrote my favourite Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible 3, who wrote my favourite two Star Trek films, Star Trek and Star Trek Into Darkness, for better or worse, depending on which you prefer or hate, and also The Amazing Spider-Man 2. And Kurtzman was the director. How do you have three people on story, three people on script, many of whom have created fantastic screenplays in the past, and come out with something that's so limp as a story and has such a forgettable script? Unless you're approaching it from the point of view of, well, if we just add some more cooks, it can only improve the broth. And from the sounds of it, a lot of it was controlled very heavily by Tom Cruise. When you give your massive ongoing properties to the writer of Speed 2, to the writer of Alien Engineers, to the writer of The Darkest Hour 3D, to the writer of Winter's Tale, to the writer of Batman and Robin, and then they don't pan out. And everything hung on the script, and no one seems to know that in Hollywood. The script is one of the cheapest parts of filmmaking. It's one of the most reasonably priced in terms of bang for your buck. Some scripts take years to develop. A good script takes a few months to write. It doesn't make any sense that you'd take something which has been developed and developed and developed and developed and work with that. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you build your house upon the sand like that? Everything always hangs on the script. If the script contains a nothing character that nobody cares about and the whole film is about them, no one's going to care about the film. It's not the universe, it's the characters. It's not the universe, it's the characters. Transformers is delivering us a cinematic universe and they have two established characters and there's not much to them. Optimus Prime and Bumblebee. 
They deliver on Bumblebee. It doesn't make them half a billion dollars. They decide to go back to Michael Bay's Bayhem. DC, up until now, were delivering us a universe without characters. Now Wonder Woman's got in there. She's all kinds of character. Aquaman's a success. Shazam's a success. Based on the fact that they're fantastic characters. Expertly realized within their films. Marvel delivered characters from moment one in Iron Man. And have done nothing but characters. Really, really great, fun, compelling, interesting flawed characters since 2008 they're doing great when you try to ape them that's what you need to try to ape not the worlds not the world building not the scope not the story not the promise of story not the action not the promise of future better movies characters so what you're saying is essentially you didn't like it then no i did not sharon i did not like it sam i am I was looking at my watch throughout Acts 2 and 3. I was bored shitless. I did like some of the set design. Sophia Boutal was kind of like sort of fun to watch, but she was basically just Enchantress. Um, you know, remember remember how Enchantress like takes that guy and turns him into her ex-lover? Or brother or both. It's that. Only the focus is on that and that guy coming to terms with his unspecified powers, which he gets in the last fucking moment. What a pig fuck. So, to return to my earlier question, is this going to launch a franchise? I'll be very surprised. Like I said, it's going to take um, Universal learning from their mistakes. Because you see, the Bride of Frankenstein film... Invisible Man, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. These are small, low-budget, low-key, monster-featuring dramas. You can do this stuff on $40 million each film and, you know, get someone who's got a really great vision for how to do Frankenstein now. It, it can totally be done, but you need dedication and focus and you need to be going out to make the best film you can each time and not care about setting up a universe. Like, not not care at all, but... The universe should come second. The films and the film's quality should come first. Mm. Well, the CG set pieces are of limited value in those in those kind of stories. I mean, Dracula doesn't work as an action movie. Universe building came first. Tom Cruise came second. CG set pieces came third. Russell Crowe came fourth. And the actual film itself may have come fifth. Or not at all. Or sometimes not at all. I'm appalled. I'm amazed. This is... I mean, I'd still put it above a lot of films. I've a couple of films. Let's see, where would I put it? Appalled and amazed, but not really surprised. I suspect. I actually, I wanted it to be a lot better than it was. What have I put it above? Assassin's Creed. It's way better than that. Well, it's better than that. King Arthur: Legend of the Sword. In terms of starting off a universe, I'm marginally more intrigued. Only just. It's only just a little bit better than King Arthur: Legend of the Sword. But we've, unlike King Arthur, we've had a bunch of mummy movies, a bunch of really good mummy movies. I'm not saying don't make any more mummy movies. But maybe get Brendan Fraser back? If you're going to do a mummy movie, make a mummy movie, not a Tom Cruise movie. Mm. It was the worst idea in the world having him headline this thing. Yeah. Having him headline this thing and falling all over him and going, make sure that you mention that his dick is big and he can go all night. Trump does that. Yeah. 
You know what? I really like Tom Cruise in in uh, things like Jerry Maguire and and Rain Man. I was just so he say, has been in some wonderful films that are very special and important to he me. Has what what has he been in? What films that Tom Cruise is in are not Tom Cruise films? Magnolia, Collateral. Yeah, Collateral, great example. When Tom Cruise is self-effacing, that's funny. That, well, sorry, that, that's engaging and compelling to watch. Mm. If Tom Cruise had been basically playing a little weasel in this and that had been the point and it would have been like, you know, that he's a weasel out for number one the whole time and then, but we know because of a couple of things he does that he's actually a good guy. The woman tells us he's good. He has a good heart inside. Does he? Does Do we he? see like, any we, evidence for this? No, we really don't. We really don't. He's a cockend. It's a wretched film. Universal are barking mad. And directed by Alex Kurtzman as well. First time director. Interesting. Currently about to co-write and produce the Van Helsing movie. And The Invisible Man. And The Vampire Chronicles? Oh, yeah. Looking forward to that. No! Yeah. They're folding the Vampire Chronicles into this. And Universal Pictures. That doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. If you've got Tom Cruise and he's not Lestat. I don't think they're actually folding it in. Maybe not. Probably not. No, that looks as though they're doing it separately. But what... Okay, okay. If there's a film that doesn't need to be remade, it's Interview with the Vampire. Yeah, don't start with Interview. Start with a different film, Vampire Lestat. Do it properly this time. Mm. Uh, Not yeah, going to yeah. argue with that, but oh. So thank God they've handed it over to Blumhouse. We got like a 50 50 chance that they'll be really good films. Either way, Universal do so much better with their um, Fast and Furious films. Okay, so that was The Mummy. Don't see it, you'll only encourage them. <laughs> For my monster from his slab began to rise And suddenly, to my surprise He did the match He did the monster match The monster match It was a graveyard smash He did the match It got on in a flash He did the match He did the monster match From my laboratory in the castle east To the master bedroom where the vampires all came from their humble abode to get a jolt from my electrode. They did the mash. They did the monster mash. School of Movies is funded by you guys supporting us on Patreon. And our $15 supporters get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolf, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett. Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisham. And as promised, let's play us out with Sandcastles from The Mummy Returns by Alan Silvestri. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Death, Death is, is Only the, the Beginning. beginning.